0: The rich feed the poor don't around the rich no more
1: Hello.
2: Uh, of course, uh, here we are on Friday. That's Brent Helloing us, and i got to call Chris back in just a second and patch him back in, and it's a Friday, and it's the, wow, what's the date today? The 8th of February, and uh didn't do a show yesterday because of technical difficulties here. We lost the Internet, I mean, right before the show was supposed to go on, and it's not the best yet. And we haven't got our new high-speed stuff installed yet, yet, but it's it works dependably, pretty much, and yesterday, right at that time, boom, it goes down, so uh, I just, by the time it came up, it was 30 minutes into the show, uh, Brent, and you you just go, hey, if there's any listeners out there, I've lost them, I didn't have time to put a replay in, so it's, you know, the curse of radio is a phrase called dead air, and uh, so we had two hours of it yesterday, sorry, Uh, we're back today, and hopefully we'll get over this little technical snafu, there's Doc calling in, Uh, um, so we'll get over this little technical snafu here shortly, and uh, be able to move forward judiciously without any of these technical problems. They're really a pain in the rear end as these things have gotten so complex in our lives. Um, So, uh, Brent, hey, welcome, man. How are you doing?
3: All right, Roger. I'm, I'm not put off by your technical difficulties. I should say our technical difficulties, and I think that your listeners understand and are willing to stay with you because we're doing something very much different, we're on the cutting edge Um, folk that uh, follow the truth use technology as it comes available, that's been proven through history, and of course the salient example that I remember from history is the use of the printing press that was high speed stuff in those days, my word, what that did, but of course the first books that were printed were Bibles, always Christian folk are on the cutting edge And uh, folk that say they're Christian that are sticks in the mud, uh, they're not Christian. Uh, They're not following Christianity. This is my observation from the history of Christian folk down through the ages. And now we see that uh, Christianity and the folks that are right-headed are using the technology that's available. I know I'm trying to. I'm just off the hog farm. I'm not anybody that's been used to a whole lot of technology compared to others, but I do recognize its importance, and I'm willing to follow along and learn what I can. And that's what we're doing here, best we can. We're trying. Plus,
2: i got to go, go leave for a second, go shut a door because they're also trimming a eucalyptus tree. I don't know if y'all can hear that chainsaw out there, but it's pretty irritating no, to me. No. Well, I can't. Okay, well, let me go close the door. It's distracting me. I'll be right back.
4: While he's traveling, Brent, uh, I'm in the process of trying to remove a case out of a really tyrannical little inquisitorial star chamber court where they got a tag team judge and prosecutor trying to throw me under the bus and uh, put me away on another so-called competency, which, of course, is doctrine of void for vagues, lacking any specificity. that's subjective and interpretive. So it's a real test of my abilities. I'm going to try to move it to the state Supreme Court here in Nevada to get some justice because there is none in that little uh, administrative uh, war court.
3: Well, now you don't have a intermediate appellate court in Nevada, do you? You go from the trial court straight to the supreme court of the state up in carson city isn't that right
4: well so far they are uh bantering about and trying to create some other intermediary courts to uh supposedly spread the load from the supreme court in the state uh mm-hmm. to some other lower level courts to give an appeals process intermediary i suppose is correct
3: so they have none yet though
4: no 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 they're uh well, of course, whenever you realize that the bar controls all the courts in the state, uh, it gives the illusion that it's a state court, but truly it's a private association, so they're, they have to maintain an air or a pretext of having some governmental oversight and go through some uh, apparent legislative processes, although there may not be any actual substance to that.
3: Uh huh. Well, I've been to the Supreme Court building in Nevada and the library there, it's in Carson City. The library there is a beautiful new library, and these things have all happened. The new library, the new Supreme Court building, as you know, also the legislative building there, until very recently, the legislature, well, I'd say recently, within 20, 30 years, I don't know, but the legislature met in a little a little room in the state capitol, which was no bigger than a courthouse in a small town. That's, that was just not very many years ago. And those buildings, of course, are still there in the governor's office. When I was there, I think it's still true, the governor's office is in that little courthouse-like building up in Carson City. And mm. the, um, the Supreme Court library has been built. So the state is growing so rapidly that they're not keeping up, and that's the way growth always is. But, of course, unfortunate with that, with Nevada, there are not many people that live out across the hinterlands of Nevada. They all live in uh, Reno, mostly, and lost wages down there. Uh, there are some people in Reno. Reno is still a small town, as they say, The what do they say, the world's uh, biggest little town or something like that.
4: Yeah, and, uh, this little city called the World or yeah, something like that. <laughs> you can,
3: you, when you come down into Reno, it's it's all right there. You can see the whole thing. It's not that big comparatively. You can drive around it in no time. You find your way around it real easy. Unlike Las Vegas, it's not a mega city. It's just a, It's still a town in my mind. And I used to like to go down there. They used to have the barbecue cook-off, Chris, right, right downtown. And uh, Yes. You've been to that, and they, they cordon off the whole blasted downtown, so there's no traffic, and hundreds, not just a few, but hundreds of competitors set up shops from all over the world, and even last time I was there, there were people from Australia had barbecued kangaroo, you know, and uh, trying well, to... <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, it tastes great, and all the casinos are open, so... They're serving cold beer, and people are going in the casinos downtown and buying cold beer and coming out and eating barbecue. And, and of course, they got the music going. It's quite a festival. Uh, it makes me think about wanting to go again. Of course, they have a big rodeo down there now, too. They have that convention center just south of town, south of Reno, and uh, they have big events down there, namely uh, rodeos. In we, town, I like to go to those well, got too. Plenty championship
2: rate. stuff there because I was in Vegas a couple of times. I don't remember huh? what for when it was that week. And everywhere you turn around, yeah. you're bumping into a cowboy man.
3: Well, you're now you're you missed part of the conversation, Roger. That and I know Vegas does that too. But we were talking about Reno, oh, the other okay. town, okay. the only really other town of any significance in, in Nevada. Of course, you got Winnemucca and and uh, those places there. They're not that big by comparison, but yeah, we were talking about Reno, but same thing down in Vegas, still as big as it is, they still have it rodeos down there, they're pretty big, yes, that's right
4: well, and curiously, there's another little town that's growing pretty good, that's Perrump out there, yes. that's close to the California line, but more of especially back to Reno, they also have another very auspicious occasion up there, kind of like the barbecue, and I am a connoisseur of fine barbecue, I sure I appreciate. That <laughs> But they also have hot August nights up there, which is a classic auto uh, celebration that they just run bumper to bumper cars up there and burnouts and all kinds of stuff. It's quite a little party town up there in Reno. And like you say, we have a great division between the North and the South. And I think really the sustaining financial contributor for the North is the Southern state here in Las Vegas. Uh, This is the core of corruption and the uh, theft center and, of course, we put the mob boss in Steve Cicilline into the office to pretend as the governor. Uh, it's a very, very dangerous substance. It's always been a rogue state, and it's still a rogue state run by criminals. Even though the mob now wears three-piece Armani suits.
3: Yep. Well, and they're also the mob is the government now, the way I perceive it. In other words, used to be just the mob ran Las Vegas, but now it's the yeah. government. They are the mob. The IRS down there, and they have an IRS. Uh, agent in every cage and every casino to keep track of who's getting pay out of money and who owes the government. I think it's and that used to be the way mo- the mob did. They wanted their cut. Now the IRS is there, and they, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's the crazy. Mob. Oh yeah, and, I, and the town and. I've talked to people down there that, you know, the, the people that carry the garbage and all the recycling, that's all mob or that's all government mob used to be just the mob. And when the mob ran Las Vegas and this and that was until the 1980s, probably at least, I mean, the private mob, things went smoother mm. and uh, there was uh, less confusion, less murder, as bad as it was, it wasn't, it isn't as bad as it is now. That's the uh, reports I get from people live there. Maybe you can enlighten us more about that. But also up in Nevada, up in Reno, up in Reno is also the air show every year. I don't want to forget that. Oh, yeah. A- <laughs> I, don't, I don't think Chris well, in- got too many glowing
2: reports on the local establishment <laughs> to offer
3: us. <laughs> oh, my God.
4: Well, you had mentioned the 80s. That goes back to the Ralph Lamb administration. He was the sheriff of Clark County uh, up until that point, until they switched to, to a different one, McCarthy at that time. Uh-huh. And that's kind of about the time I got here And uh, oh, I got here in 83, I think it was. Uh-huh. And so, well, you yeah, know, that's about right. And so it's been a really interesting view for me. I've seen some great changes. The growth, like you say, has been exponential. I've worked through some booms and some busts. I've uh, lived it firsthand, working through the union here and seeing the growth spurts and then the retraction and right now it's a real dangerous time because like you say government has become the biggest mob racketeering operation in the face of the world and i think that's really the emanation of the complete cesspool of corruption that's trying to take over the world and run it by criminal conspiracy
3: yep that's what i see too it's getting worse and the population there when i was out west in the mining business um Las Vegas, I think at that time first time I went to Las Vegas was in nineteen fifty nine. I was a little boy. And I remember looking back now how small it was, and it was uh, about a fifty thousand people, something like that. And there was one strip, and that strip is still there, but now it's just a tourist attraction. It has the old uh what is it, the horseshoe bar. A f- uh, fella from Texas uh came there with a Cadillac here, he cut the top off of a sedan and just filled the back seat with <laughs> cash and nobody knows where he got the cash. I assume it was in the, the oil.
4: Business.
3: Yeah. What was his name?
4: Bill Binion. Binion.
3: Yeah. Binion, the Binion family are still there. Apparently oh, now yeah. the Binion family, one of those, the, the son of that man that came from Texas with that, uh, back seat just loaded down with, uh, cash and, and set up that casino down there on the old strip. Uh, he recently, well, recently, again, 20, 30 years. he, ended up committing suicide. Is that what you've heard?
4: Well, I'm not sure. He may have had a little help. It wouldn't be surprising to me. (laughs) They call that Fremont street, that area downtown that you call in Las Vegas. And, uh, you know, there's some, some really crazy goings on here. Uh, there was a, oh, the Julian, Julius Suave and, uh, Heather tall chief, I think it was. And, Mm -hmm. uh, armored car heist here, and then that led up to some other contractors and stuff, and girlfriends and boyfriends that were involved with uh, one of the other Benyon sons, and a whole lot of silver that came up buried in a vault somewhere. I mean, the intrigues here are just never-ending, oh, <laughs> Now, now uh, Brent.
3: That was the, the have... son that I remember had the vault that he had dug out in the desert and had it loaded down with was with, with silver, but that didn't surprise me because the way I understand it, all of those casinos keep their uh wealth in gold and silver. They don't they don't keep it in cash. That'd be foolish, I would think. And they do their own banking and they keep it down in the vaults below the casinos often, or at some secret place out in the desert. And he this Banyan Binion, you say Binyan, is that the way you say it? Yeah,
4: B I N N O I O N I think it is.
3: I guess I've lost no, are hang you on there? That. Are you there, Brent? Yeah, I'm having technical difficulties. Roger, hang yeah, on. Yeah, there you go.
1: It's Brent's side.
3: I, I thought maybe. you changed
1: microphones.
3: Yeah, no, I like did. I was trying to get a better better sound, but... Well, I've got it now. I can hear you. Nope, I figured okay, out what good. to do, but... it Was it Binion or uh, instead it's of Banyan? Is that what you no, said? No, it's, it's Binion.
4: Yeah, uh, Benny Binion, B-I-N-N-I-O-N, I think is the way he spells it. Or maybe yeah. it's one N.
3: Yeah, well, he was the one that I understood had the... The silver stash out. You now we had a vault dug out in the desert, and Perum mm-hmm. has grown exponentially too. And I've been there in the last few it years is. and stayed there. Nice place. I, I thought yes, it was a nice is. place Com- compared to Las Vegas. And Las Vegas has gotten such a big, got to be such a big city. I'd rather not stay there when I travel. You know, but. <laughs> You can't have everything.
4: It's less dangerous that way. <laughs> yeah,
3: you know, I always, I liked, I used to like to travel through Nevada because I'd stop and stay in the casinos because you could get a room for twenty, thirty bucks, uh, depending upon oh. the season, and then you could go to the boards and they had the best smorgasbords in the world, and they always had real, I mean, real fresh ground horseradish, and I'm a bad addict. Mm, yeah. And so I'd eat it, and you for seven or eight bucks. And back that was when, though, not many years ago, but when I could, I had a holler leg, and I loved to go to smorgasbord. I'm not that way anymore. I can't eat that much. It doesn't pay like it used to, you know. Yeah. But
4: uh, well, your your descriptor there Brent, not quite with the times. They call them buffets or barfes more actually, because you eat till you barf. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but your observations oh. are accurate. Let me tell you what they've done now. Like you say, you used to be able to get a room, $19.99, $20, still uh, come times. But they've created the county commission and its extortionate theft, lust for more money, have created what they call a resort corridor tax. And you see those cheap prices online, you go to book, but when you book and get here, you find that they've almost doubled or even more the price of the room by having a resort corridor tax. And, of course, it goes to all areas out to Henderson and Pahrump and Mesquite and everywhere else so they can jack up and rip
3: off the tourist. Oh, I used to stay at Henderson for $20 on a regular basis. And then Mesquite and Bullhead City. And that's when I was out there tooling around looking at mining property. But we'd stay in Bullhead City and Mesquite. Mesquite was a beautiful place. I think it's gotten pretty big now, too, though, hasn't it?
4: Yes, and, and Bullhead City's grown quite exponentially. Of course, you just got uh, Laughlin right across the river there yeah. from Bullhead. And, and uh, then, it's quite a good metropolis and a river drive and lots of casinos down there, too.
3: Those places were nothing but holes in the road with a casino or two. And then the other place that's still not that big is Jackpot.
1: <laughs> you know where yeah. Jackpot is
3: up north. But then Winnemucca has grown a lot, too, because of the Carlin trend. That place is, um, it's just getting bigger all the time. I've noticed. And it's these places, some of them are even getting respectable. You know, they have churches and things like that where people can take, <laughs> no, it's true. You go to Winnemucca, you know, they didn't, they've got a, it's not that big a place, but they've got an airstrip there that'll land those big business jets. Cause those gold mining execs like to dr- fly in and out in their biz jets. But there are a lot of people working there. I know some people that work there and they work for the mining companies. That's the, <laughs> what drives the economy. And, and they want a place to go to church. And, uh, so there are churches in town now, amazingly. And a lot of folk are, well, they're, they're enjoying family life in some of those places. They've got Walmarts and all the things that families like to have in Winnemucca or not. I said Winnemucca. I meant Elko Winnemucca too, though. Winnemucca yeah, has yeah, a big Walmart. What's that? <laughs>
4: Oh, I'm I'm with you. Both those places up there are pretty big. I've been up in that area quite extensively. In fact, I looked at land up there whenever I bought my land down in Arizona and uh, camped up on top of some big mountains up there and big rainstorms. And like you say, they got that big open pit mining there uh, where they're doing micro portions of an ounce, a ton of gold and silver and other precious metals rare earths that they get out of there, I think. And it is mining is big
3: business in the valley. You are exactly right. Yeah, mining. And Matter of gambling, fact, mining. But, go ahead, Rod. Go ahead. Mining
2: and gambling are the two, I guess, right? Oh, yeah, they um, stuck
3: in the gambling. Money. The, as they there. call it, try to euthanize or uh, give it a more respectable name. They call it the gaming, the gaming, the gaming industry. industry. sure. Yes, you know, yes, that's yes, where yes. you just steal money from people. Everything's rich. All about words and
2: their connotations, isn't it? We had a number of people have joined us. First of all, uh, Bob, too, and Chuck, and and uh, uh, I'm not even sure who all, but at least those two. But I was going to say that when you're talking about Binions, you know, John and Glenn were centered in Las Vegas. They were there when the IRS raided them uh, back just when I was real new, within the first few months. And John loved to eat. That was one of his downfalls in life he had that uh-huh. that of the of the seven sins and uh he loved binion's horseshoe and i did okay. have the privilege of eating that binion's horseshoe which has a spectacular buffet uh with him a couple of times so i just was thinking about that when y'all were
3: talking about it. uh-huh Oh, and when I was, uh, again, when I was a little boy, I do remember being in those places down on the strip with my, I was with my father, obviously I wasn't by myself, but, um, uh, I thought, wow, this, all those one-armed bandits were there back then. That's the way they used to have them instead of the poker machines. And, uh, recently <laughs> I had a client there and we, he said, I'm going to take you down to strip. And so we went down the old strip. I hadn't been there that 1959, a lot of years ago. And, uh, um, mm-hmm. I, it all came back to me, but what was, um, shocking to me was how small everything was compared to how the casinos are built today. Casinos are built today. So the gambling floor is 40 to 80 acres. I'm not exaggerating much, but back then when you sat down to eat and the old Binions and those others along the strip, your elbows would bump the guy behind you at the one-armed bandit machines. And those one-armed bandit machines are still there. You know, they've kept them all when i was there that's been uh that's been 10 years ago i guess time flies but uh, it's been a it's been an exponential growth 50,000 and i remember when i was out there in the 80s it was maybe 700,000 or something i don't remember something like that and uh, that's las vegas proper and now i well, three three four million 3 4 million or something isn't it
4: yes we're way over a million that's not considering the over a million of perpetual tourists that we have here so it is pretty large. You know, you're, we're talking about Binion's. You probably remember the horseshoe they had when you went in off the Fremont Ooh, Street. Yeah. They had the $1 million display. And one thing that was kind of worthy of note, you mentioned their food affair there, which was pretty well known. Uh, Benny Binion had his own ranch. I think it was up in Montana or North Dakota where he raised his own corn and grass-fed beef. And he would bring in his own beef for a steakhouse down there, Ooh. Binion's, down the basement say oh. and they put on some pretty fine food fair
3: oh no i wasn't aware of that at all well it was it's quite a story to read about him but it was a tragic story too because his family didn't fare that well just a lot of money and of course the corruption that goes with all that that it, it's, it's hard on people you know we talk about it's fascinating to read about but i wouldn't want to live that life no. to, you know to make oh, it geez. i think the the boy and this was in the papers i'm not saying anything that is isn't public knowledge but the boy is probably my age or older but he uh i think his her- heroin addiction finally got to him yeah they pardon kitty bin yeah a nice fellow matter of fact uh, people said everybody was friends with him and he was a friends with everybody he uh, was a well-liked felon. And it was tragic that his life went the way it did. And then as you say, his death was probably orchestrated by others, uh, unnecessarily. In other words, murder, but, uh, that's Las Vegas. That's the way it is. I don't like to go there for that reason. I get a bad feeling. I mean, it seems to me like there's just a lot of negative influences there. A fellow doesn't want to get involved in last time I drove through there. And this was after Trump was elected president. We are driving th- down the freeway down to go just heading through, you know, and um, noticed that there was a big building right in the center of uh, near the, the the, new strip. And uh, got close enough and I said, I believe that says Trump on the top of it, T R U M P. And come to find yeah. out, it did. It's his building, a skyscraper.
4: Yes, he built a tower there on the Las Vegas strip, as you say, right down near just off the of Sahara. And the side of the old frontier is where he built that particular place and a couple of other little places. Uh, and that right, was right across from the old Riviera. And uh, he did build a nice tower, although I think he uh, sold it out or rented it out or something of that nature. Uh, Phil Ruffin, I think, was involved in that deal. That was the Frontiers guy for a while. But uh, i not trying to do a Las Vegas promo today, so I, I think maybe we should uh, shift the conversation to more important and material I want to
3: say one other thing though, Roger, before All we right. leave Las Vegas. Okay. Last time I went downtown for a legal, uh, seminar, uh, I was shocked again, oh. always shocked at the changes. I didn't see any Americans down there. I it was just the fellows I was with. There was a legal seminar maybe, but. Uh, everybody was from the Orient or someplace or, you know, it wasn't what I typically remembered. And I do, what I remember from when I was a little boy was the, the large, um, cowboy downtown. Yes. He had a cigarette hanging out of his mouth, a great big statue and his arm was waving, you know, and, uh, I think they moved that down on the strip, but yeah, we can we can talk about something substantive. But I I get tired of talking sense all the time. Sometimes I want to talk a little nonsense. Well, yeah, I agree with that. all right. A little nonsense is well appreciated. (laughs) Well, let me
2: see. We've got. I know Bob joined us, and I know Chuck joined us, and I believe that Robert joined us, which means we'll no doubt get some more Las Vegas talk. But as in the order that you know, you dance with the girl that brung you. Uh, Bob,
1: we'll start with you. How you doing today, brother? Doing well. I had just called in because your particular voice wasn't coming through on the uh, listen live very well. And Chris Chris, and uh, and uh, Brent were coming through well, so I called in to see if it was any better. And you're still drawing the you're, – you're riding – you're riding in the back. It's not okay. coming through as well as they are for well, whatever reason.
2: I'll try and boost this little slide a little bit and see if that changes that.
1: Okay. And that's really the only reason I called. I was just listening, but I okay. thought if it was affecting me, it might be affecting others. Okay. So you can go on to the next one. Well, job. you
2: know, this is part of <laughs> the... Even Brent might not know. I'm having to do the show on a portable, and I'm—we're just, just not hooked up yet, and I haven't got all this together. So you are too quiet in the mix. Yeah. I'm trying to scoot up that slide and see if we don't correct that up there. Thank you, Mr. Paul, is listening in today. There's a lot of somebody's wiggling something around, and getting some noise. Chuck.
1: Yeah, you, something's really noisy.
2: I don't know what it is. Somebody's. These microphones are just ultra. S- uh, sensitive and with uh, sometimes you just get it even nudging it with a beard a beard hair I guess uh, Chuck did you join us Yes I did Okay Where are you Are you in the, at the you office care? Yeah How you doing today
5: Ah I'm calling in I'm fine I'm Calling in over
2: my radio Okay In my band while I'm traveling all right. Well, I'm, well, I'm wondering where that noise is coming from. I'm wondering where this little bump in the background is coming from, audio-wise.
3: What does it sound like, Roger?
2: You, uh, somebody's bumping uh, something, wiggling in the back with a pan. Not me, I'm it out. Okay, it sounds I've,
3: like something going down a drain to me. Is that what yes, you're hearing?
2: Yes. Yeah. Same thing. I was going to say, like a pan in the back like of a pickup. Somebody's
3: power. phone's
4: jostling around their pocket or
3: something.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, maybe we'll stop yeah. it. I'm just, you know, those things bug me. Well, mute yourself out for a second, Chuck. No, Chuck, mute yourself out for a second. Okay. And let's see if that doesn't take care of it. It takes care of it. Okay. Chuck, it's you, buddy. Sorry.
5: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Sorry to give you the news, but it was you. Uh, did, if you got something significant, well, that's, that's okay, man. Do you have something—a good question or comment—or you just want to listen in? If so, we're going to ask you to mute I'm about, out. I'm about to pull into a uh,
5: parking lot, anyway. So uh, I had to go deposit a check. Um, sounds you know, like
2: I was just going to call in and tell you the same thing that Bob said. And, okay. Yep. All yeah, right. You know it's. It, well, I got huh? I got my mixer up a bit, so hopefully that took care of the problem. Okay,
5: I'm just trying to enjoy this cold 16 degree morning. Ooh! And uh, yeah, it's, you know this this weather is so messed up. The, earth part of the part, early part of the week, it was supposed for three days. We we're supposed to be from 50 to 70 by Wednesday and it did not happen. We got a cold front coming in, I guess, from that stupid Siberian garbage that they're pulling over here in our country. And uh, so, and we we had clouds, we had two days of fog. Two days of stinking fog, and it was supposed to have blown over Wednesday afternoon, and it didn't happen.
1: <laughs> That's not me. Where are you now? <laughs> That's not me. That's not me. I'm still oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> That's somebody else. <laughs> okay.
5: Uh, anyway, so now we got we got a day. Yesterday the clouds finally broke up. And we got a little bit of sun. Today I wake up. There's sun in the sky and. Lo and behold, they're spraying
2: chemtrails again. <laughs> I swear, I just can't get away from. Them. No, I'm speechless about the condition of everything. Really, in a sense, but um, but we got that noise with uh, with your commentary there, and I hope you get through the weather difficulty, Chuck. Uh, but that's really irritating that's going on in the background. Didn't you say you'd gotten a new Bluetooth installed or something? Could that be coming from that? Well, it possibly. I,
5: I put a Bluetooth radio in, and uh, now I'm able to run. I can answer calls and stuff through it. It's okay. got a microphone that comes with it. So.
2: Well, it may be a volume thing but or something, but there's some kind of a real, like Brent described it perfectly, something glugging down a drain. Going on in the background there. It's ceased now. It's not going on now
5: Well, I stopped uh, driving so maybe that's it. That's yeah, probably know.
2: got something to do with it. Okay, good enough Well, you you know the old weather man. It's uh, we're going into this global solar minimum That's a large part of it on top of whatever they are may be doing or are doing um, Let's see who uh, Robert you chimed in there. Are you still with us is that you with the child running around the background?
6: Yeah, I, I tried to mute out. I guess I was a little slow on the draw. Sorry about That's that. That's okay, uh, some man. Some women chase their babies, but I finally muted out. So, um, yeah, you boys are right. Uh, uh, gold is big in Nevada, especially northeastern Nevada, or sure. in Elk, where I used to live, so I'm quite familiar with that. But the big reason I called, and I'll make this brief, and I'll just uh, listen. Uh, Roger, you're not into UCC, Uniform Commercial Code, too much, are you?
2: Well, yeah. We talk about it all the time. You know, I think when we talk about the law of the city, that's the Uniform Commercial Code. We talk about the self-help remedies that are used against us, uh, uh, levy, lien, garnishment, and seizure. Those are all Uniform Commercial Code. That's what we're we're living in, the Uniform Commercial Code. When you file the affidavit, that's what you're trying to get out of. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't still interact with it, but it doesn't have that overriding authority over you is the way that I would understand it and try and explain it. You know, in Atlanta with our Patriot group there, our big Patriot group there for so many years, and we had a, an attorney there that I got to be friends with. I don't even remember his name, and it was in my early stages of understanding this. And he just flat told me one time, he said, Roger, we're under the Uniform Commercial Code law. And he's right. See, and he didn't even understand it to the extent that we do now. But uh, Mm. uh, we talk about it all the time. I just don't necessarily always uh, 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 identify it as that, uh, Robert. I'll tell you what else we call it, too, the law merchant. It's also called the law merchant. Did you know that?
6: I think I've heard you say that before, yes.
2: Well, it, it was originally the Babylonian Merchant Code. You can read about it over there on my website, sovereigntosurf.com. Over on the right side is that book from the 1930s. John Hopkins University published it, and it's called Historical Jurisprudence. And the first 90 pages are entitled The Babylonian Merchant Code. And it gives you a very scholarly and accurate view of of its kind of its origin and how it was used and different examples. And it, it's quite good to read. I always encourage people to read it, and you'll have a background of what's going on here because that's really what's in operation.
6: I've got to read that then. But the the affidavit, obviously, is the easier route to take to get out of all that and not be under that, it's, as opposed it, to trying to fight it, through the UCC. It
2: is the simplest way to attack this that I have ever found, and I, I searched it out because I was looking for a way, okay? And oh. I saw everybody else in our community fighting this, and then I had that little deal I had with the IRS and took them to court and had the IRS agent on the stand for four hours and all that stuff, okay? And after that experience, as as the dust settled in my mind, I said, hell, there's got to be a better way to do this. And, and right, from that is. point, it, it just opened yeah. up, you know, and yeah. I started exploring it and this jurisdictional thing and a couple of the things that had really stuck in my mind over the years very provocatively, uh, I, I pursued and then it all just happened. But it wouldn't have happened if I wouldn't have continued and the, the, the draw on me such that I was the only one out of 1,200 students that took this information any further, and look what the hell we
6: found. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the sword that King Arthur was looking for. Boy, Exc- it cuts you gotta, quite nicely. You got a.
2: You <laughs> yeah, speaking of Las Vegas, you got an establishment out there named after it. It's called Excalibur.
6: V- very good. You are correct. Yes, sir. <laughs> the city of lost wages, as you like to call it.
2: <laughs> you know where that came from? That you know. came from one of my old
6: record business
2: buddies, uh, long since deceased, unfortunately. There was the capital rep in Atlanta for over 20 years, and his name was
1: Gene. Yes, Ryan, this is Bob Morgan. I saw where you told me. Hello? Hello? Uh, Bob? Up. Bob? Picture. Bob? This morning You're in on us, Hello? <laughs> To, <laughs> uh, uh, the conference call I'm going to I'm going
2: to I can get
1: Bob but out Sam, of my brother can, who I believe you dealt with last year. I well, can get I him. I you I know
6: it was him. with that. I, I, just, I think I'll do out No, no, John no. I just
2: I, I you see I do have the ability I can get Bob out of the conversation. So, um, I was saying that out of those 1,200 students, I was the only one that took this any further. And you, you just out of sheer curiosity, you know, and back to that verse in the Old Testament, Brent, uh, because they have not a love of the truth. I didn't have a love of the truth. I had a, an obsession with it.
3: Well, that's good. Of course, a love would be an obsession, I think, the way it was understood there. Love of the truth. You know, love of the. Now, the, the whole idea of loving the truth um, and love, the whole idea of love in the Bible is grossly uh, ignored. In other words, it's, it's, it's entirely among Christodom, and I like to divide Christodom into two parts uh, Christodom, D O M, Christodom, and then Christodom, D U M B. And most of Christianity has and always will be, uh, I think, uh, Christa dumb in the majority sense. The uh, 90% or better. But love is to us, unfortunately, and this is wrong, uh, the way you feel about things. It's affection. It's eros. It's uh, the way you love a woman. It's the uh, the warm affection you feel for your friend or the warm affection you feel for your son or your daughter, your wife, your husband. That's not what love is in the Bible. There are three only three words in the Greek tongue, and the New Testament's written in the Greek tongue. There are only three words in the Greek tongue for love. Uh, two of them are in the New Testament, and uh, one of them is not. One of them is eros, which has to do with erotica, uh, things that are erotic that has to do with sexual love between men and women. That word is part of the Greek tongue, but it's not in the New Testament. But there are two other words that are in the New Testament prominently that uh, mean love, with one other word that kind of does, but that's not of any uh, consideration. There's one there that talks about familial love, uh, Sturgis, uh, the way some people pronounce it, like Sturgis or Stugis. I, I, it depends. We don't know how they pronounce it. It doesn't make any difference. Let me talk about the two words that are in the New Testament that are prominent. One of them is, uh, is um, agape, agape. And the other one is phileo. Those are two verbs. They also have noun forms. They mean the same thing in the noun form. They're just used as nouns. Agape and agapeo. Agapeo is the verb. Agape is the noun. Mm-hmm. And then there is the other word, eros. Uh, er, I'm sorry, not eros. Uh, phileo. There's phila. That's the noun. Phileo is the verb. And then they have all different kinds of forms and intensity. But fundamentally, that's what they mean. Well, phileo uh, has to do with pressing. Pushing, pressing. Sophalao is used to bespeak a shake of the hand when you press the flesh. Or when you uh, kiss the forehead of, uh, of your child. You're pressing your lips upon the forehead. That's pressing. A hug of another person. A bear hug. Or a side hug, that's pressing the other person, that's phileo. And it's often understood as brotherly love. It has to do with affection. It has to do with the natural bodily attraction. When I see somebody I haven't seen in a long time, I grab their hand with one. My father always did this, and I find I do the same thing, um, just because I suppose it's uh, something I grew up with. I grab the right hand with one, and then if I really am affectionate toward them, I'll take my left hand and grab their forearm and shake them like that because I'm really glad to see him. Well, that's phileo. And that's throughout the Bible. When the Bible says, uh, Paul the Apostle says, give the brother a holy kiss, that could be just as well translated, give the brother in, uh, a, a hug, or give the brother in a handshake. That's you, phileo.
2: You should, be in the, that's, you should be in the South well, American culture, Brent, and they'd give you a big old kiss on each cheek.
3: Yeah, then that's phileo, and that's part of the, the Greek culture, the Latin culture. That's a Latin culture, and and uh, we know the Frenchmen do that, and uh, that's part of it. But it comes down to phileo, and phileo, fundamentally, to get every use of the word, there are different shades and uses of context, but it's always the same. It has to do with pressing the flesh. It has to do with bodily affection, uh, family affection even, how you feel, affection, how you feel toward the other person. Um, and then there is the other word that's prominent and dominating, and it's the word that defines Christianity, and that's agape. Agape is the, the noun and agapeo is the verb. And agape, agapeo, has nothing to do fundamentally with how you feel about the other fellow. This is the fascinating thing about it. For example, it says in John 3:16, for God so loved agapeo, the world, the, the world order, agapeo. There's nothing there that says he loved men, specifically and expressly. That's a different matter, but that's an important verse. Agapeo, but that's the word that's always used for Christian love. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love is patient, love is kind. That's agapeo. But agapeo is a love. It's the, we, we call it love because we only have one word. But it is that which arises out of duty. And duty arises out of law. Jesus Christ did what He did out of love, and that love rose out of duty and that duty arose out of law, the agreement, the law that the God had made among themselves when they agreed what they would do to the redem- uh, in behalf on behalf of the redemption of God's people. And um, so when we do what we do, not because we specifically have an affection for the other person, but we know this is what God demands. We know God demands that we not torture our enemies because the Bible's clear on that subject. We know that. And even though we don't like those that we're at warfare with, maybe we're not affectionately drawn to people of another race, another color, another culture, we still do toward them what God tells us to do. That's love. That's why the Bible says this is the love of God, the Agapeo, the Agape, and the now. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And that's what holds the world together. And that's what God does for us because he does it out of duty. Go, ahead, Roger, you're going to say something. I I can tell sometimes from noises I think you're going to say something. Did well, I hear you? That wasn't me, a- <laughs>
2: but I do know it was Patrick who's joined us on oh. the call. Hey, Patrick, were you chomping at the bit to add something there?
4: Oh, yeah. Just, just,
2: you know, don't forget agape love or philo love. That's how it was explained to me in the Bible. You know, agape being an old Greek term where it's the highest form of love and charity, uh, to Yah and to man and
3: mankind. And then Philo love is how I love you. So, you know, I was taught in Bible study a long time ago. You have agape and Philo. uh, over to you. And I, no, I agree, but the, uh, Philo or phileo, as they say, the word Philadelphia, the Quakers named, uh, the town Philadelphia. That's phileo Adelphos brother and, uh, phileo means, um, means to press. It It's that affection you have for the other fellow. But only Christian folk, and this is the, one of the hard truths of the Bible, but it's true. Only Christian folk have that love that is attached to duty and goes beyond how we feel about the other fellow and drives us to do toward the other man, the last of the five commandments of the 10 commandments, to do toward him what God tells us to do when we really don't like him, we really have no fondness for him. We really don't want to shake his hand. We really don't want to give him a hug. We, we aren't glad to see him, but we still do what is right because God said so. And that even comes down to our own spouses at times, and it comes down to our children that wrong us. Uh, we still do. And now it may not be that God wants us to be affectionate with them. Again, that has nothing to do with agape. We do what God tells us to do out of duty. Interestingly, and this is the curious, one of the curious things about this whole idea of Islam. Islam, that's all they have. Islam has uh, obedience to law. There is no personal relationship with their God It's uh, the word Islam means obedience. Uh, The word agape or agapeo in the in the Semitic tongue, ahav, the Hebrew and the Arabic, isn't part of their understanding of their God. Their God is a tyrant, absolute tyrant. Our God is a tyrant too. Now I say that softly, but I say it this way: It's duty first. But our God also has affection for us. That the God of Islam, the Moon God, really what it is. Uh, They don't have any concept of that. Don't want to because in without Christianity there is no agapeo. It doesn't exist in the heart of the of the individual. God has it. He communicates it to us, And, and as the Bible says that He loved us. Agape. Agapeo. While we were still in our sins, while we were still in our law-breaking, while we were still abhorrent to him, he, he loved us. That means he did what he promised he would do. It's a matter of law. It's a matter of, of the, the promise, the law of promises, we'd call that contract. That's what the Bible's all about. It's all about law. And to divorce law from it is to divorce agapeo, agape, agape in the noun, to divorce that ultimate commitment of duty to law that translates into love. There are a lot of people, don't tell me, there are a lot of people that bury their spouses and they're glad they're gone. I talked to, a, and that, but they still had that agapeo, that duty because they took a vow. I talked to a lady recently who's uh, elderly, I'm pushing 90, hadn't seen her in years and years and years. She's a cousin to a shirt tail cousin to me, if that means anything. Uh, maybe I, I'm related, I'm related to a lot of people at home, but I was talking to her and she was 80 some years old. Her and her husband had split up 40 years ago. He took ill. Why they split up, I don't know. Uh, Divorced. He took ill. She went back and cared for him for three years. He was an invalid and cared for him for three years, and he passed away. I said, why did you do that? She said, because it was the right thing to do, and I was convicted it was the right thing to do, and I did it. That's Agapeo. It was abhorrent to her. She didn't particularly like the guy, but she knew that's what God wanted, wanted her to do. He pressed it upon her, and she did it. That's what holds the world together. And it is the people of God among mankind that hold the world together. And we, it says, as Christian folk, we have that toward one another. Uh, read First John. That's, that's what he talks about a lot there. It's one of the major themes of that first epistle of five chapters. So when, the, when people talk about love, in, the, in Christianity, most often they don't talk about that. They'll say things like this God puts that desire in your heart to be affectionate, to have that phileo toward other people. Well, sometimes you will, sometimes you won't, and as I'd said, even with those that are more or most close to you, it just depends. But love, when the Bible says love overcomes all, love conquers all things, what he's talking about there, what the Bible's talking about is that agapeo, that duty that arises out of law. You do it because God said to do it, not because it's particularly desirable for you to do it. Back to you, Roger. And
2: also, you know, the, yes, almost the, some of the hippie uh, 60s input there, love, 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 love breaks the chain because otherwise they spiral on a self-replicating spiral based on hate, and it just escalates. And love well, is yeah. the only thing that breaks that chain
3: but i would say also the hippies were an absolute demonic movement
2: oh yeah i agree of it's the, came of out the
3: of, a, false, of yeah. the false idea of love they had no they were pushing affection sure. and let's just all you know, put down our arms and our weapons you know, and love one another I, you know what i'm saying i agree that.
2: totally and that they it came right out of tavistock institute and it was the first big social shock they sent in in their in their engineering thing after brown versus board of education
3: but I, I live, I've lived around, uh, communities of old hippies and it's pretty sick to watch what they've, their, their lives are utterly destroyed. A lot of them. And they still are following pagan religions and they, they're just, they live stinking filthy lives and they're hateful. And, of course, a lot of them are still on drugs. Some aren't, but they've just ruined their lives, and they've followed New Age, the doctrines of demons, as Paul says. That'll get you nowhere. That will destroy you. It will destroy our whole country. Agreed. And there are pockets of places like that in the in our country. Go ahead.
2: No, I just said
1: agreed. I agreed.
3: Oh, yeah. Uh, um, so it's important to understand to understand what love is according to God, according to the author of it, is to bring all your life in right order if you understand the fundamental of it, and you can only understand the fundamental of it if you have the gumption breath of God, the Spirit of God. It's not possible otherwise without the new birth. But what the new birth does for a person, the Bible teaches, it makes him fully persuadable to the evidence of truth. And if you don't have the new birth, you're just simply not persuadable. It doesn't make any difference how much evidence there is, and there is a lot. There's no question. And, I've, and all people are going to be responsible for their decisions, but At the same time, they're not persuadable. The Bible teaches that in no uncertain terms. And that relieves a little bit of the tension of what happens, because if God wanted...
2: Now hold it. We lost Brent again.
3: Are you? You're back. Am I back? Yeah. Am I back? Yeah, you're back. I'm learning how to use this (laughs) mic. But um, there is that doctrine of the absolute and utter sovereignty of God in all of this. And love is not available to everybody in one sense. In another sense, it is through the new birth, but uh, God is sovereign, and I don't want to ever forget to add that. He controls all things. He, If he doesn't, he's not God. He's not the creator. He allows things. He commands other things, but it's all under his control. Uh, so to be too hard on people, uh, because they don't have that, we want to be leery of them. We don't allow them to run over our jurisdiction to get in our way. But at the same time, uh, we don't need to torture them and to be mean to them unnecessarily and to attack them unnecessarily. Uh, back to whoever else uh, has a comment. Um,
2: Brent, I wanted—I sent you the article. I saw it last night. I, I hope you got a chance to look at it um, about this meeting this past week and this document signed by the head of Islam and, the, and Papa over there from the uh, Catholic bunch. Did you see that?
3: I saw it, and I didn't read it, Roger, so fill me in. And we can talk well, about it. I'm going to look here real quick. I
2: don't know that I, I skirted it last night and read it. They well, got together. I'm not sure where, what part of the world, but uh, what uh, impressed me out of what I remember from looking at it was all religions were represented at the conf lab and at the ceremony, and they signed some document, and the the um, the auspices of the document, didn't sound bad at all, you know. I mean, and you can read there's some excerpts there if you've got it up. But uh, as they said at the end of the article, it's the, next, it's the next big step towards a one world religion. And, of course, oh, they painted, yeah. painted glorious reasons and for peace and harmony and helping the poor and the destitute, you know, all, all the normal let's just tax the rich kind of language. Uh, but I just wondered what you thought about it. I didn't know if you had to a oh, chance to look at well, it. Well, you're telling
3: me, uh, and I'm going to read it, but you're telling me it's always the same old, as my father said, it's, we used to have to scoop the manure out of the cattle barn, you know, and, and he'd say, well, if something come up like that, he'd say, it's the same old stinking stuff. Every time you turn it over, it stinks worse. And it just lays there and, and, uh, gets putrid uh, like cattle manure and hog manure, and that's what that stuff is. There's nothing different. You describe it to me; it's always the same. Let's all put down our differences and love one another. But of course, the doctrine of love is we don't we trust one another, and we don't watch one another. We don't recognize the evil in the heart of man. And so, what it comes down to is, I'm encouraging you to do this, and you'll do it on my terms. I'm going to get the upper hand. And I'm going to skin you alive. That's destroy your family, destroy you, murder you, uh, steal, kill, and destroy. I want your money, as you said, Roger. Kick your butt and take your stuff. That's all that stuff amounts to. There is a difference. There is not a uniformity here. There isn't. We're all, the religions are the same. We're all trying to find the same God. No, a thousand times no. The God of Islam is not the God of of the of creation. The God of Judaism is not the God of creation. The God of Romanism is not the God of creation. Uh, not even the same Jesus Christ in that case. I listened to a well-known Bible tre- teacher. As a matter of fact, uh, I've listened to him for years, and I've learned a lot from him, but he's one of the best-known Bible teachers in America right now, no, no question. He's uh, hundreds of radio stations, hundreds of out, out, uh, outlets. He's fundamental on a lot of things, but he's one of these fellows that denies the law of God uh, fundamentally and claims that once you get the Spirit of God, you don't even have to learn it. You just know, well, that's, that's, that's so silly, it doesn't even deserve a comment. But all of dispensational Christianity is in that mode, as though that there's some magic that goes on when you become a Christian man. No, there isn't, there isn't magic. There is the Spirit of God. It's supernatural, yes, but not magic. The Spirit of God invades a man, and all of a sudden then he has the ability uh, his will is no longer bound to sin the chains fell off the the chains do fall off his heart is free he gets up he goes forth as the old song says and I follow thee thine eye diffused a quickening ray this this is the work of God not the work of man not a matter of my will no no a thousand times no Uh, does my will coalesce with his yes do I make decisions yes do I make choices yes I have to but I become persuadable at that point and just like a child in the, in the birth here on earth, all of a sudden I'm a new creature and, uh, I will be disciplined and I will fall in line because the father, the creator of all things is a perfect father. He won't let me get away with anything of those that I have received. I have lost none except says Jesus Christ. And if he, if he lost any, he wouldn't be Jesus Christ. He wouldn't be a member of the Godhead. So he. He takes us in. Then he becomes responsible for us. We become his slaves. And there's no other way to understand that word either, by the way. You know, that's another word. The Bible comes down to words. Uh, often translated servants, often translated bond servants. Bond servants is a word, an old English word that means slave. Um, slave The word slav wasn't known to the English-speaking people until recent centuries, and so they were called bondservants. But that word in the Bible, doulos, in the New Testament, Jude says, for example, half-brother to Jesus Christ, writing the epistle of Jude, he says, Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ, doulos. There's no other way to to, uh, understand that word. It's abject slavery to the creator of all things. But that's a pretty good deal. But once you're a slave, here's the point I'm trying to make. Once you're a slave, you're not responsible for your welfare anymore. You're not responsible for much of anything, but you're responsible to you're not even responsible to exercise <laughs> anything beyond what you're told. The, the reason that word is used in the New Testament is because Christianity is an ultimate and final uh, commitment of life. There's nothing above it. Um, and we need to say it that way. But the other side of it is, he's not a tyrant to his own. We are his children at the same time. We are born, as it were, from his own body. We are called, as First John says, we are, he says, what kind of out-of-world, otherworldly, strange love, agape, what strange love is this, that we should be called children, sons, to be accurate, sons of God. What is a son of something? It is a direct product of that thing. A son of God is a direct product. The demons are called sons of God. Why? Because they're direct products of God. It doesn't mean they're on his side. It means they are direct products. The angels are called direct products. Of course, the demons are fallen angels, but the angels are called direct products of God. We say in our own language, in the the language of the Semitic tongue, they said the same thing. Uh, You are a son of a thief, a son of the night. You are a direct product. You are a son of your father, the devil, said Jesus Christ. We say, for example, in English, you're a son of a gun. Well, that has an interesting history, but it means a direct product of women who gave birth at the, um, because they conceived among the guns on the gun deck of British warships. Um, <laughs> but we also have son of a thief, and we have the son of a female dog. Well, those are all uh, derogatory statements, but the idea is uh, you are a direct object. I'm the son of my father. I'm a direct object of my father. I'm a son of Adam. Adam, the Bible says, is son of God. He's a direct son of God. We don't become sons of God. We're indirect sons of God through Adam, but we don't become sons of God until the new birth. That's what the Bible teaches expressly. And so once we have that, uh, it's amazing, says John, that we are called that. Then at the same time, we are slaves. So all of these concepts our concepts that, like slavery, sonhood, are concepts that uh, reveal to us our relationship to our creator. And uh, other religions, false religions, as you had talked about, they want to just take, of course, uh, a piece of that. Islam takes a piece of, of what God is. God is the greatest, uh, uh, the greatest uh, uh, warrior the world has ever known. And he will crush when he comes back. Jesus Christ will crush. Any, anybody that looks at him cross-eyed, they're, they're gone. It says that with a rod of iron, he will destroy anyone who resists him. Well, that's what our God is. He's a greater uh, God of warfare. Islam says they've got a God of warfare. Well, that's all he is. But our God is the greater God of warfare, and he will destroy him utterly as he did. He'll line them up as he did the gods of Egypt and knock them down one at a time just to show everyone who has the most power. It's just a matter of a cat playing with a mouse. Go ahead.
2: I'm going to tell you any ethnic or religious movement or sect that encourages interbreeding and intermarriage doesn't Uh have a long track record ahead of them.
3: Well, no, and the Bible teaches that about the children of Israel. We see the children, the sons. The word children in the Old Testament that's translated children is always b'nai, sons, I don't know why they did it that way, but uh, the King James translators did that. Of course, well, that's another question. I don't want to get off on that. You'd made a point. And if you go to the books of Esther and Nehemiah, you see that. The bottom line is, uh, there is no, to be unequally yoked, as the Bible puts it, this is a a general principle of God. He says you don't yoke a, a jackass with an oxen. Don't yoke them up together on the plow. Don't do that. And, of course, it goes to everything. Do not mix the clean and the unclean. Do not mix grains, it says. We're talking uh, mixing grains. And, and Well, it has to do with economics, too, because if you allow that, you never know what you're buying. If you buy a bushel of wheat, you may have something else mixed in it. I've seen that happen a lot at home. That's Farmers used to do that routinely, and grain buyers would do it to try to, try to make a little more money. God says don't do that. Uh, don't mix um, weed seed in with it. Don't mix wool with cotton. Those are all important concepts, not only because of the picture they paint for us of truth, but also because it uh, has economic and health uh, health be- uh, benefits to, to not mix those like that. I think that can be shown, too. But all of those, that's in the law of God. It's just a, fundam- it's a fundamental first principle. You don't do that. And by the way, doing those things is to love the other fellow. It is to even love agape yourself because you do it out of duty. Let's see. Let's see what God says here. Because if we want to love our fellow man, we must do do it the way he says to do it. And to just throw it to the wind and say, well, I just don't want to hurt anybody. No, you're hurting people. You're hurting people even by being affectionate toward people. God says, don't be affectionate toward. If you really love people, you'll do what God says toward them, even if it seems like it's not the nice thing to do. God knows. He's the one that made us. He knows what's good for the other fellow, and he knows what's good for you. And your commitment should be to what he says and the first principles of his way, his way of doing things, his way pointed out, and not to what, well, I just know what's right and I don't feel right. No. What you feel in most cases is likely, this has been my discovery through life, m- most likely wrong. Most likely what you think you ought to do is just wrong. If they like Coverdale, Coverdale translated the Bible. He did it before Tyndale. Uh, The Coverdale Bible was uh, one of the Bibles of England that was there for a long time. Uh, Right after Tyndale, uh, the Coverdale came out. Coverdale completed the Old Testament from the Hebrew and English that uh, Tyndale had not completed. And then the Bible was published. But Coverdale said this. Coverdale said, wherever the word of God goes, it brings order. And of course, wherever there's order, there is shalom, tranquility. Now, there's another word. Uh, no Islam. What, what, what fellowship has darkness with light and truth with the lie? Islam is a lie. Romanism is a lie. Judaism is, the, is a gross lie. All of those. And they're all three about the same fundamentally. Fundamentally, they're the same. And then take all of the other isms and schisms and perversions of Protestantism that are out there. and You got more lies. There's no fellowship. I go into uh, church and get to talking to people. I I say this with all due respect to other men, but I've been forced out of a lot of churches. And uh, it isn't because I wasn't willing to tolerate what they were doing. I was willing to tolerate what they were doing. They were not willing to tolerate me even being there. And I wasn't even bothering anybody. I used to go to church that was charismatic charismatic that means they jump and whoop and holler and talk in tongues and they slay people in the spirit they were doing all those things I, I don't do those things I believe that that's all wrong it's, it's again the doctrines of demons it's the continuation of something the Bible has said did not continue but I was there because it was a small town um, I, I had friends that went there that I knew were sincere Christian folk I believe they were misled they had got into Christianity through that movement And that's where they'd start, just like a lot of people get in through Roman, the Roman church or some other movement. uh, They got in and I knew they were sincere people. I loved them to death uh, using the word in the biblical sense. And I went there and I didn't want to participate in the madness that was going down on the floor of the church. And it was an old church building that had a balcony in a little town. And I'd sit up in the balcony and wait till the performances and the foolishness was over. And then I'd try to listen to what was being said. And they also had a good training program there. They had uh, a Bible school there uh, that they had. They used videos back in those days. And it was very good. Well, anyway, in time, I got to hearing that they were talking ugly about me. The preacher was passing that around. He was a part of this apostolic movement that's going on where you have apostles and teachers and levels of hierarchy, and the money flows to a central location. It flows up. That's the biggest thing. It flows up. The The
2: money flows up.
3: (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah, that flows up. Just like Rome, you know. And this is a, a supposed a, assembly of God crowd, all those guys. It all the power is centralized, the Baptists are that way, and the money flows up and there's a big organization. But um they would not tolerate my presence, knowing that I would not participate in the doctrines of demons. That's doctrines of demons. I wouldn't participate. Same thing's true of course if you go with uh, any any ugliness and ever any gross deviation from the law of God, uh, homosexuality. All of that. If you don't cheer them on in what they're doing, they're going to come get you. It's not enough that you sit to the sideline and just say, well, hey, I'm not going to get involved in this. That's their thing. If they want to do that, no, that's not enough. The Bible says they're going to come and get you. Go ahead, Roger.
2: Isn't that interesting? In a house of worship, they would marginalize you and and cut you out like that simply because you didn't wish to participate in that part of it. It says a lot. That speaks volumes, doesn't it?
3: It's, and I've been to a lot of these charismatic gatherings. I've been to a lot of them. I've had all sorts of experiences because it's, it's, it, it, it persuades my friends into the movement because they claim to be Christian. And uh, I've been around a lot of them. I will tolerate them, but I've discovered over time they will not tolerate my presence. And one of the reasons they won't, because that know I don't go along with it, and they, they're afraid, deeply afraid, that I'll thwart their movement. I'll, I'll start something, uh, a leaven, uh, to use the analogy of leaven in another way, that will destroy their power and their money. That's all it boils down to. These people are liars. I've been around them for years. They're convinced they aren't liars. I really believe that. And they get mad that I say, no, they're liars. It's buffoonery. Utterly, buff- It's utter buffoonery what they do. The Bible doesn't teach that in any way, in any place. I heard people, did I mention this last time? Oh, their names are, uh, the Word of Faith movement, that's part of the whole apostolic thing. And there are some leaders down in Texas, and oh, they live in mansions worth a a billion dollars. And they tell people, you can have anything you want. All you have to do is believe it and say it and say it and never say anything negative. And now, and of course, they say, too, that they have the power to control the weather. That Jesus Christ himself gave them the power to stop hurricanes. And all well, if they have that power, they're cruel people, because they're not stopping hurricanes. Yep. Why didn't they stop Katrina? All the people that died and all the suffering, the despair, and the federal government came in and took over power. If they have that power, they don't. If they have the power to heal people en mass, why don't they go to the hospitals and clean the places out? Why don't they go to the insane asylums like Jesus Christ did and heal the people? Oh, they'll say we've done that. We've done. We we have it. No, you don't. You're a liar. I've seen it. I've watched the buffoonery. I'm weary. Man, am I weary at my age. And I used to be less vocal about it. And I didn't want to be presumptuous. But I'm weary. And what it comes down to is this, Roger. The only thing that Jesus Christ wants out of his people, just one thing, agape. What is agape? That you just do what he tells you to do. What did he tell you to do? He is God. He's a member of the Trinity, the Godhead, to, be more bibli- to use the biblical word. And he is the giver of life, the creator of all things, the Bible says, the giver of law that governs all things. And what he wants is a people that will do what he tells them to do. Follow the way pointed out, Torah, with the index finger it means. That's what he wants. That's what he's looking for. And you cannot do that unless you immerse your mind. And when he gives a man the birth from above, that's what that man w- will grow up and want to do. It's going to take time. But once he leaves babyhood, gets into adolescence, he'll begin to want to know what it is that his father wants him to do uh, through the Son and the power of the Spirit, the gumption breath of God. That's what Christianity It's not uh, having fantastic church meetings where people are falling on the floor, giggling uncontrollably. Uh, claiming to do miracles, uh, dust uh, in gold dust falling from heaven, and you can see it lying on the seats and on the floor. I've been to those kind of meetings. That is such silliness that people ought to be eliminated eliminated from the presence of the churches and ran out. But But again, what it comes down to, if anybody's there that doesn't want to participate like me, they get real ugly, and I'm, I'm upset about it, ought to be. You ought to be upset about it, too, anybody I'm talking to. This is not what the Bible teaches. Well, back to you, Roger.
2: No, I agree uh, 100% and more. Uh, Doug joined us, our good listener, old friend Doug, up there from Northwest Arkansas, and I know he loves these Friday shows, as do all of us, and he's always got, well, most of the time he's got something real valuable to add. Doug, our friend, a man of few words. How are you doing?
0: Oh, thank you for that caveat. I resemble that remark. (laughs) Uh, Well, uh, blessings to all of you. And uh, I do have something to add. It goes back to uh, what Brent was speaking about, this guy who uh, said once you have the spirit, you know, you've got all the knowledge, you don't have to study. And so I put in this person's face, 2 Timothy 2.15, which says, study to show yourself approved. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, you know, uh, a, a workman, you know, that's going to be approved before the Father. And that word study is, uh, it's a Greek word. It's spudazo. Uh, okay. And it literally means, like, I... I I like I liken it to digging a ditch. You know, I've done I've worked uh, jobs uh, working a ninety pound jackhammer for eight hours a day. So I and done done a lot of ditch digging and shoveling, and so I I know what real hard work is, and that's what I uh, relate to that Greek word spoudazo, and I was blessed uh, years ago uh in different periods but where I got to study the uh, uh mainly the new testament but also the old testament because when you want to understand a subject i was explaining this to a dear brother of mine uh, this past week in a conversation that uh in you know 18 hours a day uh, most people would never want to Spend that much time studying but it's a uh, it's it's like looking for gold in a sense uh and one of the things i explained to him is um in the process of uh what it takes to understand to the best of our ability in in this uh sphere of studying is that okay you pick a word uh out of a verse and you want to understand its application well if you're going to do a thorough job you have to go uh you have to use its uh hebrew and greek uh uh applications or it's where it's found and then there's going to it's going to be applied uh, and i won't go too overboard on this but it's going to be applied in verbs and preposition. It's going to be applied in many different ways. And if you want to do a thorough job, you might spend a day just studying one word in all of its applications, so that you can get some understanding of uh, how it's being used uh, in this particular verse that you're studying.
2: Has somebody oh, got water going uh, in? Excuse it, me, Doug, for a second. somebody got water going in the background?
0: Yeah, it's, it, yeah, it's pretty loud. I, I don't know what
2: that is. Uh, it sounds like somebody's got a, a water faucet open or something. Uh, okay, well, it's it's got closed now, so go ahead, Doug. I'm sorry.
1: Yeah.
0: So, anyway, to do a thorough job, it doesn't matter whether you're changing a faucet or changing an electrical receptacle or a light fixture or wanting to understand a particular word and its application. Uh, what I, When I had the time, then I would I would study that word and all of its derivations from the beginning of the book to the end. Now, some, some words are only used six times, we'll say. For example, some have hundreds of various, uh, where they're found in different verses throughout the Bible. And if you want to do a thorough job, then you you do that job to to gain understanding. And that's studying to show yourself approved, because when I would study this, I would want to know what is its application in this verse, and what is its other application? What is it related to? How is it used in the many different, Versus, (laughs) Versus, <laughs> so for someone to say, uh, okay, I put in uh, one light fixture, therefore I know all electricity, it would be akin to that. It would be, you know, ridiculous and stupid. And so, anyway, uh, that's my input on that. You have to, and, and well, and then the other issue uh, that Brent uh, mentioned is, see, it's supposed to all, be about being approved before the father okay that's what second Timothy two fifteen says you know study that you may show yourself approved before the father okay so that your actions are you know they've there's been thought there okay put into it there's been study put into it so you actually understand the subject of even one word uh, which can be diverse but in the end, you'll, through that study, you'll understand much more than you did when you began where you were just <clears throat> guessing. Yep. And so uh, there is no, you know, you get, it, it's like uh, the scripture says uh, about um, you'll know them by their fruits. Okay. Well, the father designed the seeds to produce the fruits or the fruits to, de- to make the seeds. You know, which came first the, the the chicken or the egg type of thing, but it, it you know he designed it you know ingeniously, so so we still have these things today. And when it comes to the love of the Father, which is uh, you know when uh, I think it was Nicodemus asked the Messiah, you know what's the greatest of the laws? He said, well, it's to love your father your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this is Spudazzo. It's not a, uh, it's not a go to church on Sunday and then forget about it the rest of the week. It's, it's about um, him. The father is, is great and he's loving and he's all wonderful things, you know, merciful and gracious and, and all these things, but he's not, he's not petty and he's not tolerant. Okay. I mean, he, he applies his grace and mercy, uh, appropriately, but he expects us to be dedicated to him and, uh, and apply that in all of our dealings, period. Okay. That's what he expects. There's no tolerance. There's no, um, you know, kind of, uh, uh let this slide a little bit here. Um, and, and it's not about me judging others. It's about me judging myself so that I stand the proof. I have to be, you know, you know, I don't, if I'm pointing my finger at someone else and I'm not saying that's always wrong, but then I'm, I got three pointing back at me. So it, uh, it, it's not about um, necessarily judging everybody and being right uh, necessarily, but these things, these most important topics whatever it is about love and how it's applied and judgment and how it's applied these things are serious matters in the father's kingdom in his eyes so we have to, we should be taking it most seriously and uh, genuinely and be humble so that um so that we're pleasing to him it, it's all about being pleasing to him that that's the way i boil it down so yep. Sorry about uh, going on there, but well, uh, that's my opinion. That's uh, well, you said a
2: mouthful. Of course, we're very cognizant of around here about words and their nuances. And as you were describing that work ethic on searching out all of the different parameters of the definitions and usages and connotations of a word. I couldn't help but think about Brent because it sure seems to me from all these years we've been doing these shows that that's certainly what you've done over the years, Brent.
3: Oh, no question. Words are not some things. Words are all things, and our maker has chosen in his sovereignty to communicate with us using words. And so he expects us to use the words and to look at them closely. I'd say, you know, you could take a half a dozen words, a dozen maybe, in the Newer Testament, for example. And if you know those words well and the concepts they communicate, everything else will hang on those. Agape is one of those words. That other word that he talked about, uh, spudazo, is, a, is an important word. doesn't occur, but I think it just occurs that once there. But that one is important because of the importance of that particular verse. But what the, that word means fundamentally, above all things, is to work up a sweat. <laughs> to sweat! To sweat! Well, that the idea is, uh, work at it a little bit, and uh, you you don't have to work at it real hard to get ahead or whatever second. But it just to understand what it is your maker wants you to do. You'll get the idea uh, just by looking at a few words and paying close attention to words, and that's what uh, Christianity is all about: is words. Uh, this fellow that I talked about, and you said you would point him to this verse that says, "Study to show thyself approved." Um, uh, he would uh, expound that verse and agree with you. This is the confusion of the the, the subtlety of the infiltrations of the evil empire. This man uh, knows a lot. I, I've listened to him for years. I know the, I know his teachers. I, kn- I knew some of his teachers and he, um, he would he would agree with you about that verse, but he denies at the same time. That the law of God, in all of its facets, is a uh, something we should study. He has preached through, expounded, the New Testament. It took him over 40 years to get through it. I listened to him for some of those years. It uh, took him over 40 years to get through it, and he did an excellent job. I learned a lot from him, but he has never really at all preached out of the Old Testament. He'll cite it in support of concepts, but he's into that idea of lawlessness. Talk about how important it is to do what Jesus Christ tells you to do and, and deny 70% of the Bible, which is in the Old Testament. That's a value judgment that our God doesn't permit nor promote. Uh, all of the Word of God is the Word of God, and there is no differences. It's all evidence of what God wants and evidence of what happened. It's the law and the testimony. And uh, Jesus Christ cites to it often, and he expounded it. That's all he had, and that—but not all he had. That was enough. The scriptures are sufficient. It says in the book of Hebrews that the gospel was preached to the nation of Israel while they were wandering in the wilderness. And you have to ask yourself, well, how was the gospel preached to the church? Calls it the church. Calls the nation of Israel ecclesia, the church. Well, how did that happen? Well, it happened through the law of God. Because the law of God, the Torah, the way pointed out with the index finger, that's the meaning of the word, that teaches us the good news. And at one time I went through, Roger, and went through the book of Deuteronomy, and I did nothing but devote, well, I just devoted months on going through the book of Deuteronomy, which is the restatement of the law of God. And all I can remember, not the details, but I remember coming away from that thinking, Whoa, it's all there. It's all there. Everything in the Bible is in that book, uh, Incipient First Principle. Uh, And if you're ignoring that book, you're ignoring the foundation of the understanding of what the New Testament does reveal. People like to say, and I think they rightly say, the Old Testament is in in the New Testament uh, uh, revealed, but the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. Well, that's not... It's not, uh, that, that's overstating it. It's not absolutely concealed in the Old Testament. It's revealed, but it is uh, progressive. In this sense, the New Testament brings more evidence to bear upon what the Old Testament has said. That's why we call The Old Testament means Old Testament in Old English means old evidence, not old evidence, older, earlier evidence. New Testament means later evidence or latter evidence. It's all evidence. Just because a man gets on the witness stand and he's the first witness in, the, in a trial and then somebody else gets on later and testifies to the same facts and the, and the same things, only adds more details, that doesn't take away from the importance of the first testimony. And that's the way it is with the older and the newer testimonies, the older and the newer evidence, the earlier and the latter evidence of God's law and testimony. Uh, what happened in the Gospel records is a substantiation of what happened and and the evidence of the older testament that's what we're dealing with back to you roger
2: wow um patrick you got anything to add to that chris has been sitting there i think the whole time too i can see now i'm learning how to use this thing a little bit better and i know those guys are along for the ride today and you got pretty quiet for the last few minutes anything to add
4: well grant and roger i have been listening very intently but i've also been double checking with travelstate.gov on my passport status made a phone call and i really have to again give laudable applause to the agents of government i've had the pleasure of dealing with throughout this process they've all been polite courteous and accommodating and i couldn't ask for better and I find it very noteworthy uh, throughout this administration that I have detected a strong change, a shift, a paradigm shift. In fact, in the way they deal with the people, and I think that is bodes. Well, I just hope it continues. Well, let's Good, hope good so. news.
2: Uh, Brent, you didn't, might not have known Chris went down and applied for a passport with his affidavit the other day, and I guess it's still in process and, uh, I don't know if, we, if we've ever talked about this, but along the line, somebody had a female that had done the process and she didn't get it back in 10 seconds. And so she was real an- anxious about it. And I said, uh-huh. why, why don't you call the State Department? She said, okay. And she did. And they said, well, uh, you can track your passport's progress online. And so she actually went in there and snipped it. I've been in trying to get Tris to do this for us, too, because I lost the other somewhere, I think. But in uh-huh. the bowels of the State Department, when you go check on your specific passport application in progress, it states in uh-huh. there twice the term "citizenship evidence." Your passport, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and citizenship evidence will be returned to you under different separate covers. I think is the first time, and then in a paragraph below that, it refers to it again. Your affidavit as citizenship evidence. Don't you find that interesting and and very oh, accurate, uh-huh. see?
3: Uh-huh. No, well, evidence is, is everything. Without evidence, we don't even have law. Because we have to have the, in order to have law, you have to have the evidences of the law. What are the evidences of the law? Well, there are many, but primary among the evidences of the law is the writings. Writings, that's English for scriptures. The writings, God has evidenced his will, He's, that's what a contract is. It's evidence of a, a set of promises, mm-hmm. and that's what a note is—a promissory note. It's evidences of a debt, and uh, all law, or the foundation of God's most particular uh, law, it, He gives us evidences of it, and along with that, or other persuasions, the other. What is evidence? Evidence is uh, evidence is anything that makes a fact that is proposed more likely or less likely in the mind of the juror, or in the mind of the investigator, if we're just talking about, for example, I want to know, is the Bible true? You know, people say, well, I believe in the Constitution. Well, that's nice. Why? Well, I believe in the Bible. Well, that's nice, too, but why? I mean, what, what, what reason is there to believe in the Bible over the Book of Mormon, or the, or the Veda of, the, of, the, of India, or the, uh, the uh, Mary Baker's Eddie's Keys to the Script? What, what, what's the, why do you believe the Bible? And I have found that most people don't have a clue. They just think it's a good idea, I suppose, their mother and father or their somebody. Somehow they have that feeling, and I'm glad they have that feeling. And the testimony of personal feeling, not personal feeling, I shouldn't use that word, the testimony of the spirit to a person is an important testimony. But if a fellow can't just really articulate a little bit why he believes the Bible to be true, then uh, that's just foolishness. There's no sense believing it. The Bible is evidence. Okay, it's evidence. A smoke and gun is evidence. There's a lot of... The, the heavens are evidence of the glory of God and the creator. The order of creation is evidence. But uh, why, why is the evidence reliable? And when you go to trial, our common law goes through the reasons why. If, for example, if you apply the common law rules of evidence, particularly, for example, the ancient document rule, and a whole lot of other rules, the hearsay rule, the dying declaration rule, if you apply those to the scriptures, the evidence of their truth and reliability is overwhelming and a persuadable mind will be persuaded isn't it amazing you find people that have spent their lives studying these kinds of things about the Bible and they, then they, they one fellow say well I don't believe the Bible is reliable he spent his whole life studying about it the other fellow says well no it's clearly reliable and they have a debate and you have to ask yourselves they got the same facts they got the same evidence what's the difference well the difference is one man is persuadable why he's born from above the other man is not persuadable. It doesn't make any difference if the sun, Elvis Presley put it this way, uh, the sun shines. The sun shines and it ain't going away and saying it ain't shining ain't going to change anything. That's the evidence that God gives us. It it's overwhelms us at every point. The Bible makes that point. Psalms, Psalms 19 is about evidence, two kinds, evidence and creation around you, the laws of nature. And then the second part of it, that short psalm, is about evidence, the Bible, the written evidence. Uh, and both of them uh, undergird the other. That's the way that psalm is written. Matter of fact, that psalm is, <laughs> I say, fascinating too often. It's curious. That psalm is written. The first half of it extols the evidences of, of the creator that he has set in creation. And it uses literary terms to to describe uh, the creation, and then the second half of the psalm extols the 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 evidence of the of the written word of God and why it's reliable, but it doesn't use literary terms to do it. It uses astronomical terms, terms that are used by astronomers to def- to define the heavens. It's a beautiful way to do the literature. Uh, the first one is about uh, evidence in creation, the unwritten evidence in creation. The second one's about evidence in the writings. But again, it comes down to why are the writings true? I say to people sometimes, the most important question you can ever answer in human existence uh, about your own life is, is the Bible true and reliable, and why? Is it reliable? Is it true at every point, and why? If you don't know why, you can't say why just a little bit and have an understanding of why, then you really have no reason to believe it. None. And if you do, you're just being again, we're back to buffoonery. Why are you doing that? and the all of life is that way. everything we do is if we're, we're it's founded upon what we believe is good evidence it, it, right down to sticking the key, we don't do that anymore, but when we used to stick keys in the ignition and turn it, we did it in faith on the evidence that the car would start. We didn't get under the hood and make sure all the wires were hooked up no we we believed they would because we had evidence that everything's in working order. We sat down on a chair. Uh, when we sit on a chair, we have no reason to believe the chair won't hold us up, and so we sit down on the evidence. We, we have a, a belief that um, uh, evidence of testimony, evidence of use, all sorts of evidence. I've sat in chairs before that have collapsed; very dangerous, yeah. and it makes me check them. <laughs> so, But there is evidence for everything we do. I hook up here on my computer. I have evidence this thing's going to work, and you and I are going to talk along with our other friends. And I have evidence of past uh, performance that it'll work. I have, I have evidence that the sun's going to come up in the morning. How? Well, it's come up every morning for the last uh, four thousand years that I can read in human history, and so that's good evidence. It'll probably continue to come up. No evidence is utterly conclusive, and there's no there's no fault you can find someplace, but. There's enough evidence it's overwhelming at some point, and that when it comes to the existence of the Creator, that He has created all things, including me, that He has communicated to us in the laws of nature unwritten in the nature of things, and the laws of nature as God written in the Bible, uh, to that evidence there is overwhelming overwhelming evidence of the truth and reliability of those things. So Jesus Christ said to His distractors, uh, if somebody came here and raised somebody from the dead... Uh, you wouldn't believe what I'm telling you, even though you have all the facts. A miracle, suspension of the laws of nature, raising a man from the dead, you're still not going to believe. Why? Because they weren't persuadable. That's why. They denied. They pulled the shade on the window, and they said, no, 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 no. The sun's not shining. I've got the shade pulled. No, the sun is shining, and you pulling the shade doesn't change it. But that's what the Judiacs were doing, the Babylonian Judiacs. He said, if, if I raise somebody from the dead, he said then, if you will not believe, if you will not accept, if you will not trust the prophet Jonah, there's no sense in doing any more miracles. The miracles are evidence of who he was. And as John Locke put it, he said the miracles of Jesus Christ established his credibility as proposer, as proposer of doctrine. That's what the miracles are for. The miracles were not primarily to make people feel better. Although they did, they weren't primarily to do a lot of things. They were primarily primarily to establish his credit, his credibility as proposer of truth. And they did. And we have record of it. And it goes back and forth that way. Well, Roger back to you. I've talked enough for a while.
2: Wow. We've covered a lot of ground today. Who's trying to pop in there? Uh, Doug, Doug.
0: Yeah. Okay yeah,
2: well, sure. well, well, I was uh, thinking you were talking earlier about bond servant, and then went into slave, and I was sitting here thinking, toying with the fact that bond in talking about all these words, uh bond and bond is the root word of bondage so oh, no
3: question, same word, yeah yeah uh-huh. but so
2: the term bond servant uh, a servant in bondage. But when you say slave, that's more of, we have a connotation of the black slavery in Africa and other slavery Uh like that throughout uh, history, of course. But the people that were in servitude In the feudal era, were different. They weren't in. They were having to. It's like the sharecropper in our country. For they give them this land, and you got to give the guy back a take, but you kind of support yourself on it. So it's not the abject slavery of black slavery, but it's what Cook Maitland, one of those guys, called the English variety of slavery. So, I just want to differentiate those because it's important that people understand uh, so you can understand the condition that most of the world's in, quite frankly.
3: Bondi- bondage, you know, it's not always a bad word. For example, if you make a promise and somebody else gives you a reciprocal promise, that's a common law contract, and our common law says you're bound. You're bound. You make a vow to God, or a vow, calling God, we make a promise to God, that is a vow. A vow is a promise made direct to God. You're bound. God has bound you at that point to your promise. You make a promise to another man and support it with uh, an oath, uh, which is the same thing as a vow. The difference is you're making the promise to men, so you summon God, have to summon God in to, to watch and to visit his vengeance on you. You're bound. We say there is a binding of contract law, and there is. The slave idea, for example, slaves, when I think of slaves, I immediately think of the Slavic people, because that's where the word came from, and I just follow the words. But the Slavic people got to be, uh, they were called slaves, Slavs, and the word became synonymous with abject slavery because the Jewish slave traders of the Roman Empire, and they were the ones that controlled the slave trade of the Roman Empire, just like they did here in America, they uh, found that uh, they'd send their slavers into the Slavic countries, and they were easy pickings. They'd send their slavers up into Gaul and on up toward uh, the Germanic tribes, and those weren't easy pickings. So they quit trying. You know, they, they wanted easy pickings. And for whatever reason, the Slavs at that time were easy pickings. And so the word Slav became synonymous with slave. Of um, course, there there were also uh, times when the people in Britain and the others were uh, easy pickings, too. So it's not to say that it is dependent upon the circumstances. In the times in the Middle Ages, the people in France and the in Gaul became easy pickings, but the word slav, slave, stuck. And so the uh, slave became uh, synonymous with Roman slavery, which was Babylonian slavery, which was Greek city-state to state slavery. And that was abject, and in, in, under Roman law, a slave uh, had no rights he could enforce at law, and uh, the owner could uh, just kill him if he wanted to, or take his children and kill his children, do anything he wanted to. him. He had no rights. And uh, we've said this before on this show, but under serfdom in England, uh, men did have rights they could enforce at law, primary, um, primary among those rights was they had the right to insist that they not be sold away from the land to which they were attached. And that meant a lot to family life in England, of course, because you couldn't... Pardon? Do what, do what, Chris? Can
4: I throw I what? was going to just suggest that we might talk about the trust indenture, the conscription or conscripted, where you voluntarily pledge to serve another for your own self-interest, uh, perhaps for a mutual shared interest of beneficial improvement and this is what we're talking about with the Creator when we are voluntary servants to the Creator is we are conscripting our souls writing a pledge to the Creator to perform his works rather than our own interest and in hopeful expectation based upon performance or lack thereof our eventual exaltation into the heavens as living with the Creator and the
3: the wonderful existence forever that's a beautiful way to put it i'm glad you said that no that that, that is uh, voluntary in that sense you know god gives us a new birth he makes us his sons that's not something we do but then there comes that point in time when we must choose to participate and go along peaceably um just like a child must at some point he must say i'm going to honor my father or i'm not and there, there's where the choice comes in and uh at that point, we, like you say, for for the improvement of ourselves and our condition and our safety. Safety is what it's all about, and that's the word, the the Latin word, salvation. And when we become safe, God makes us safe. He safens us, to coin a word. That's that's salvation of God. He safens us for eternity, and uh, we do it for our beneficial, uh, for our for our benefit. We go along peaceably. But I hasten to add, I tell people, they say, well, you say, you're, you're, are you one of those once-saved-always-saved guys? I say, no, no, not necessarily, not that way. But at the same time, uh, I would say that there's, uh, there's an understanding of that concept that's correct. It's most often not understood correctly. Well, they say, well, if that's true, I can just go do anything I want now that I'm a Christian. And I say, oh, okay, well, I would advise it, but if you want to try that, go ahead. But you're going to suffer, and it's going to hurt. But uh, I I'd, I'd suggest you just do what you're supposed to do because if you do try to do that God has two choices with his people. He'll put the hurt on them and he'll bring them into conformity whatever it takes. Or if it's bad enough, he'll just kill them and take them home. He does that too. And we have examples of that in the Bible. So it's not something to play with. And if you feel like you want things to go better for you as you said, for your own benefit, it's just easier to obey the law, obey the will of the sovereign, and want to do if you go along with him. Uh, like my brother, my little brother said to me, little boy, we were piling brush out down on the O'Brien place and cutting brush, piling brush, burning brush. And his job was to take the little limbs that he could uh, drag and drag them over to the pile. And then his bigger brothers, me and my other brother, we'd throw them about in a brush pile where they were burning, would burn. Well, he got to loafing and messing around. And my granddad gave him. Well, he disciplined him and, uh, my little brother, he wasn't born four or five years old then, maybe just could talk. You know, he came to my granddad and he said, and he, he just started doing what he's supposed to do. And then he came to grandpa and he said, you know what, grandpa, he said, what? He said, I do what you tell me and we get along just fine. Don't we? And he, (laughs) 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 <laughs> I said, yeah. that's the simplicity of it. I mean, even when we get old, just do what we're told to do by the guy that has authority to tell, and we'll get along with him just fine. You know, no operation woodshed. And, uh, if you haven't been taken to the woodshed and you belong to God, you will be. give it time. It'll happen. Um, because he says, he promises that he chastises. That means he disciplines every son he receives. Uh, it's all there. At well, any rate, uh, go ahead.
0: Well, you know, if we don't willingly humble ourselves before him, he will humble us if we are of him. And, you know, part of my journey on this whole thing is to become like my Heavenly Father, to gain his nature. And so that's why I had the study, because not only did I want to have a true relationship with him, but I wanted to act like him. I wanted to be pleasing to him. And he has... Uh, in my understanding, I try to boil things down uh, uh, in everything I do so that whatever I'm doing, it's simpler. So I start with the basics, and then I move up, or it could be this, it could be that. And in our Father's uh, kingdom and his nature, he has two major uh, aspects to his nature. One is grace, and the other is mercy. And if my understanding is correct, grace is something you get when you don't deserve it, and mercy is something you don't get when you do deserve
4: it. <laughs> and so, yeah,
0: yeah, and so um, the. And I was um, as I've been listening here. Um, there's a thing that I call uh, greasy grace. I didn't make up the term, but a lot of these Judean uh, things and with tolerance and all of this, I call it greedy grace, okay, because anything goes, it's not according to his nature, Uh, it's absolutely against his nature, but if you haven't studied, you wouldn't know, and if you're a compromiser, then, um, you know, you're going to uh, sell out for mammon, and so... um, the scripture says that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so if I want to be like my father, I have to be uh, walk circumspectly and really watch, you know. I want his grace and I want his mercy and he, he will apply it appropriately. And so uh, this isn't a game for me, uh, all the decades I've been involved in it. Um, it's not that I don't make mistakes, but if I do, then I apologize and I repent, and I I don't I try ne- never to make that mistake again. And uh, you know I I had uh, quoted Second uh, Timothy two fifteen before, and there's another scripture here in Second Timothy three sixteen, and it says uh, all scripture is given by inspiration of it says god and is profitable for doctrine which is rules okay it's like the right way to do something you know you don't uh you don't use the hook end of a hammer to hammer a nail in so that's kind of like doctrine and then it says for reproof that's where you're getting off the path the single narrow path uh for correction okay which is you know, you get reproof that says, don't do that. Reproof is more like, oh, you did do that. So now it has to ramp up a little bit more. And you've got now correction. And it's all for instruction in righteousness. And there's a colon there. And it says that the man of God, and you could probably choose that to be the child of God, uh, may be perfect, thoroughly I mean excuse me truly inside out type of a work furnished to unto all good work to to be able to do all good works and then the last scripture I want to share here is um, it's from uh, the second epistle of Peter uh, 1.21 uh, well 20 and 21 and it says knowing this first now, when I read a word knowing this first, it must be pretty important and it says that no prophecy of Scripture, and so we could call this prophecy of Scripture as instruction, like, okay, because that's what prophecy kind of is, okay? It's given to a, uh, a special um, child of the father, because there have been women prophets, there men prophets, so... Uh, I want to be correct, uh, you know, not really, but, you know, but uh, knowing this verse, that no prophecy of Scripture, none of it, know this verse, that none of it is of any private interpretation. So when we did it in the original, uh, coming from uh, inspiration from somebody that's getting that message from the Father... It's not an opinion. It's not coming from, um, you know, just uh, some Tom, Dick, or Harry. So we, as um, those that study, we have to be very careful what we say, what we teach, because everyone will be judged accordingly. And if you're speaking, it's one thing if I'm just talking between me and someone else. But it's another thing when you get on the air and, you know, ultimately a million people could hear you. Uh, there's that trepidation there because we're, in a sense, representing our Father and His Word. And so these things are not to be taken lightly. How I act, what I say. Uh, that I mean, for me, it's the most serious thing I could ever do.
2: Well, Doug, I promise you that the words we say on this platform, we try and say sincerely and we take all this stuff extremely seriously.
1: I know. I'm with you.
2: And and the the fact that we can take these things that affect and manifest in our lives on a daily basis so much that have an effect on not only our lives, but people all over the world, and we can... Take those things, synthesize them down, show how the whole thing is set up and operates, and be able to give people not only a shot at their freedom if they choose, but certainly with a little bit of work, a shot at some sanity. Because otherwise, you don't understand what the hell's going on in the world if you don't understand this.
3: Um, Roger, I'm going to chime in with one more thing, if I can. Yes, please. About that, and that was—I'm glad he brought that verse up about private interpretation i'd to a debate between a protestant and a roman priest once and that roman priest just kept hammering away at well you fellows think that every man's his own pope and you can have a private interpretation of the bible but we don't say that we say you must have the interpretation of the mother church and on and on and go about the authority of the pope well that has nothing to do that verse has nothing to do with me deciding what i believe the bible says What that verse is talking about, the whole context and the words themselves, you can go right to the verse, is about the source of the written revelation of God. And he says there, uh, the scripture, the writings of God, are of no private interpretation. And what he's not, there's no command given there. He's making a statement of fact. He's talking about the fellows that were the, the, the wrote the autographs, the original writings that wrote them, the writers of the Bible. We know who most of them are, of course. He's saying that this is an ablative of source in the Greek tongue. It means no writing is a private production. In other words, the writers of the Bible did not, and the word interpretation is used there to translate the Greek word uh, hermeneutics. It's the word we get our hermeneutics from. Hermeneutics means to interpret. They received the revelation of God, and then they had hermeneutics and interpretation means literally in the Latin tongue to transfer the information. As one fellow said, they got a massive download from God, and they had to transfer it over to us. How did they do that? They wrote it down. They wrote down what they saw and understood. Some of them were conscious of the fact that they were writing scripture. Sometimes they weren't. The Bible's clear on that, too. But whatever happened, they had to transfer it over. That word interpretation is an unhappy translation at this point because the meaning of that Latin phrase has now changed. We take it to mean something other than it is, but the word hermeneutics, and the study of hermeneutics, we take that word in the New Testament, means the study of how you get the point across. When we talk about the Bible today, right now on the air, we're trying to get the points across that it says, and we're trying to describe what it says that's called hermeneutics. That's the word that's used there. And that's why he says in the very next verse, he says, the men that wrote the scriptures were as men that were borne along by the Spirit of God. And the word that that's used there is the word that uh, is used in the book of Acts, chapter 28, to talk about wind filling the sails of a ship. They were born along by the Spirit, and they wrote down. Then they transferred over. That's the old meaning of the word interpretation in the Greek text, the hermeneutic word, the Hermes. Hermes was the Greek. Hermes was the messenger god. Mercury to the Greeks. Hermes, he was the god that had the wings on his feet, if you remember in the old days, Marathon Oil Company.
2: He's on the dime, uh, had... Mercury dime, yeah. too.
3: Yeah, and the mercury on the dime, same guy, had little wings on his feet. He was a runner that carried the message from one city to the other. By the, He's the guy, the marathoner, that uh, we fashion our marathon after, it was one of those kind of fellows. He carried a message. Well, that's all people who describe the Bible trying to get the message over from, from from the scriptures to the hearers. That's what the writers of the Bible, they were trying to get the message over. They were prophets. That means they represented what God said before men. That's the opposite of the priest. The priest represents men before God. But the whole context there of that verse and that you brought up is about the source. Where does the scripture come from? How does it get to us? Not how we interpret it. It has nothing to do not a private interpretation. That meant not of a, a private interpretation of the men that wrote it. That's what it's saying there. So we are responsible as individuals to discern what it says and to work at it, as you pointed out a while ago, to sweat over it, to worry over the words of the Bible like a dog worries over a bone, so we can get to the pith of what it says. Beautiful. Yeah. No. William, William Tyndale called it the pith. He said, you chew it up like cud and you You're looking for that pith of truth in the fruit, and that's what you want. To use another analogy, but as a dog worries
0: over. What's remunerate.
3: that? Remunerate. Rem- remunerate. Yeah, remunerate. Chew the cud. That's right. Uh huh. That's but what it says. Ruminate, ruminate.
2: Ruminate is the way you say that. I love that word. Uh, Brent, that, uh-huh. so they can ruminate over all the stuff that you do because you're such a wonderful source and a wealth of information. Uh, for the people that don't know or might not know how to get more of you, please inform us here at the back end of the program.
3: Well, just to uh, say it again. Uh, all what we've discussed, uh, I'm nothing but a messenger boy. I'm just trying to, I'm the guy running along, trying to get the, the message across and, and that's what you're trying to do. And we're all trying to do that in our own way. And, uh, but if you uh, want to get more of what I think getting the message across, you can go to www.commonlawyer.com and you can find their resources for free. I think there are 200 audio clips uh, the books i 've written i 've got a, a translation of the Bible. A common lawyer translates and annotates the Bible from the original tongues the Hebrew, the Chalde, and the Koine Greek a uh, raw translation the winterized version people call it oh, almost fourteen thousand footnotes now in that Bible. You can get that if you want it. go to the contact page and email me and uh, tell me you want to try to get a, you want a copy of the winterized version of the Bible. A common lawyer translates and annotates. And uh, you'll be emailed back and told what to do to obtain a copy. You can also find other books there. And also at Amazon.com, just type in my name, my name, Brent Allen Winters. And my name's on the website. All my books will come up on Amazon.com, Comparative Law Text. You can hear me, of course, on People's Patriot Network. I noticed on the West Coast, I think I come on at 7 o'clock in the morning. So that'd be 9 o'clock in the morning, Central. Uh, 10 o'clock in the morning Eastern and uh, on People's Patriot Network, of course, this show. And then on Saturday mornings, we have uh, law classes. You can go to the website, commonlawyer.com, and see how to participate in that. You can see me, but I can't see you. Then on Sunday morning, we have in church, in church. And we're going through the Gospel of John, and you can uh, see me again and listen, but I can't see you. That's all on the website, commonlawyer.com.
2: What a busy guy Brent Allen Winters is. We're glad to have him here on Fridays and on the rest of the schedule, too. Brent, we'll see you next Friday, buddy. Maybe we'll have our tech stuff straightened out by then. Your microphone sounds real good, by the way. Oh, good. And uh, we'll get better. You know, just take baby steps trying to walk the right path. Certainly glad everybody that tunes in is along. And you guys have a great weekend, and I'll see everybody on Monday. Brent, see you next Friday, buddy
3: look forward to it Roger thank you all
2: okay you guys have a good weekend Try and get organized. you are a mighty
3: good messenger brother
2: unbelievably good you're right Chris thanks all of you okay
5: Earth will swallow you Lay your